I'm digging for feeling. And when I hit the feeling, that's when I get the shiver, kind of like sent a jolt through me. Something about writing the book made me realise that I needed a drastic change in my life. That's just called relating to people. And then maybe writers are the people who can't do that in a normal way and have to do it through writing things. She's like, this is quite personal, Amy. Are you, are you sure you want to publish this? It's a miracle to me that I've managed to finish anything, let alone now, like six books. Yeah, they exist, don't they? So I must have done them. <laughs> Welcome to In Haste. I'm Charlotte Runcy. And I'm Alice Vincent. In this series, we speak to brilliant authors about the challenges of writing their books and putting them out into the world. And we talk about the matter of writing when you have a real life to live. This is where we discuss how great books really get written. Alice, how's your writing? You know what, Charlotte? It's actually going well. I've just had one of those happy collusions of things where like your interview sources align and you have a few bits of inspiration and you manage to get some words down on a page and crucially you don't just hate what you're doing which sounds terribly dramatic but I I do spend a lot of the process of writing a manuscript constantly doubting it and self-doubt is something that is quite well known not just in writing but in creative work generally right it's like I kind of live in this swampy state of self-doubt because I think that's kind of where the interesting stuff happens when you push through it but it's quite tedious and it's nice to get some rays of sunshine especially when the days are so short so yeah it's it's going well actually those are the moments you really have to hang on to aren't they? I feel like in any manuscript there's much much despair to be got through before you get to the end. And so those moments, those golden moments of actually it's going quite well and I don't hate this and actually it could be good. You have to cling on to those with all your might because they are, they'll fade before you know it. And if I could, I would bottle them, but I can't. So I'm just going to tell you about them. And maybe when I'm next in the pits of despair, I'll listen back to this and be like, it is possible. Or I think, God, she was so naive. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. How about you? How's your writing going? I mean, I feel like I should give some light and shade uh, in opposition to your positivity but actually I've had quite a good week as well I am oh. yeah so I'm in the I'm in the fortunate position of having a two book deal and I'm now at the point in that contract where I need to supply some ideas for the second book um, to my editors and for the last few weeks that's really been uh, worrying me <laughs> because I, I don't know about you but whenever I sit down at a desk with the with the idea that I'm going to just have an idea. I need to have ideas today. Nothing, nothing happens. It's just absolute crickets. Um, and so it's a kind of ever mounting panic feeling. <laughs> I need to have ideas and I don't really have any. But then last night at about 11 p.m., just as I was getting ready to go to bed, I suddenly thought, I don't know, like a, like a character really kind of popped into my head as a someone it would be interesting to write about. And I kind of thought, oh, what if there was this person who had these thoughts and these desires and how would that work? And who would they be like? And then I just, I wrote 800 words just when I should really have been going to bed because my children get up very early in the morning. But it was great. And I felt really, I kind of, you know, it may be in three days, I'll completely abandon this idea. But there's this, I'm in that moment of, oh, this could be something, which is a really nice place to be. I love that. And as a nonfiction writer, I'm always amazed when novelists are like, someone just walked into my head. I'm like, oh, that must be fun. It's so interesting you mentioned that kind of liminal, wakeful, sleepy stage as well. Because I remember interviewing Tessa Hadley and she was working on a novel and she's brilliant. Obviously, Tessa, if you're listening, come on in haste. Oh, yeah, please, um, please do. But, 
It would be amazing. But she was saying that she had been in a period of dreamy wakefulness and that for her is a very fruitful time. And she, the next morning she can never quite work out where it came from, whether it was, you know, something that she'd thought of, something that she dreamed, but it's there. And I suppose that, that goes to the cliche that you should always keep a notebook next to the bed. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose if you're Tessa Hadley, then it's always going to be pure gold when it comes into your head at that moment. It's <laughs> yeah. like for the rest of us mere mortals, it's mostly 90% utter dross. <laughs> you're just going to throw yeah. it away. It's like, you know, my my idea for a sci-fi novel that's absolutely never going to get written because it's just too mad and weird. <laughs> the grim contents of my notes up that no one could ever see. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's best that we move on from this. I agree. Although I do want to hear about your sci-fi novel one day. But <laughs> our guest today, I'm delighted to say, is Sophie McIntosh, who has written three novels, including The Water Cure, for which she was long listed for the Booker Prize, as well as Blue Ticket and Cursed Bread. Last year, she was named one of Granta's best young British novelists. She's been nominated for the Women's Prize. And perhaps coolest of all, Vogue magazine has called her a face set to define the decade. I mean, that's just incredible, isn't it? How many novelists has Vogue said that about? I mean, like, I mean, most most novelists may be a kind of sort of trolls that wouldn't ever grace the pages of Vogue magazine because they're too surrounded by coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> bad habits. Paper. <laughs> bad, very bad habits. But My Sophie, asthma of sadness. Exactly. <laughs> Sophie is not like that at all. She's um she's extremely cool, but she's also someone. I mean, for me personally, she reminds me of my secret past as a poet because Sophie is someone I knew when we were sort of vagabond teenage young poets um, <laughs> entering poetry competitions for, for young people a long time ago, very long time ago. Um, so it's been very cool to watch her career as a novelist go stratospheric since then. Which of her books do you first remember reading, Alice? It was The Water Cure, and I had it in hardback. I really remember reading it, and it was one of those really hot, dry summers. You know how, you know, London just shrivels into a kind of Labrador coloured crisp in that weather. And I sat in Green Parks. I must have had some time between work and going out. And um, I remember sitting on the grass and reading it and it just felt like the perfect moment for it because the water cure is set on this very almost apocalyptically hot island. We think it's an island but this a strange place where it's baking and I just remember being plunged into this world and Sophie's one of those authors for whom I always end up buying multiple copies of her books because I buy them and lend them to people and lending people books is like lending someone a fiver you're never going to get it back again <laughs> I have like two I have two books that you've lent me that yeah there we go back. case in point so I lend them because I pass them on and then I'm like actually no I want to read that again she's a real she's an author I really reread actually and there's not many of those I love how her novels all have this kind of destabilizing intensity to them in the prose. Like she does this wooziness of time and place that's combined with really sharp, vivid, clinical observation that I just really admire. But I also think of Sophie as a kind of literary head girl because she's extremely cool and extremely accomplished, but she's also just a really wonderful, warm and inspiring person to be around as well. And she also has a very elegant and stylish social media presence, which I'm not ashamed to admit that I'm aware of. <laughs> She's aspirational in all ways. <laughs> As always in this episode, there is some swearing and some discussion of adult themes. So if that's not for you, we just wanted to let you know. But yes, enough of us. Let's get listening. Here's Sophie. Sophie. 
Sophie, I think you and I actually first met when we were about 17 or 18 and we were both shortlisted for a, like a teenage poetry competition, which feels like a long time ago now. But I feel like there are quite a few novelists who start out as young poets. So I really wanted to ask you, how did you make the transition from poetry into fiction and starting to write novels? Yeah, I just always loved poetry. And I think, you know, short fiction when I was a teenager did seem kind of daunting as well. Like it just seemed too long. <laughs> I actually struggled writing sort of short stories for quite a while. I, I, I mean, I went to Warwick and I did the English and creative writing course there as an undergraduate. And even then at the end, I just remember still thinking like writing anything beyond a thousand words was going to be a challenge. And then I had to write a creative dissertation as part of that, as like my kind of final um, project. And that was 10,000 words. And it just seemed like a massive undertaking. But in actually doing that, kind of I realized I could write a longer thing and the kind of what was required. So it was fairly gradual, I guess, going from kind of poems to like thousand word stories and then to a novella. And then being like, if I could write a novella, if I just write like six novellas, that's a book. <laughs> Do you think writing poetry makes you a better novelist? Yeah, do you know, I think so. I think that kind of that attention to image and for me, like a focus on language is really important in my novels, no matter what the length of them. I think I'm always really drawn to sentences that really shine and paring things down so that they are concise, but also like very vivid. And I think, you know, poetry is kind of the best training for that, for sure. You know, for someone who was daunted by the notion of novels you've published three of them in quite rapid succession what was that journey to publication of your first one The Water Cure like? It felt like it happened quite quickly but also like took a really long time because I had written a book before The Water Cure and I probably spent like most of my early 20s working on it it was another novel that didn't get published that did go on submission but didn't get picked up and it was after that that I told my agent about the idea for the water cure and she was like, well, it sounds great, go for it. And I was like, I can't believe I have to write another book. But I'd kind of recently won a short story prize. And because of this, I think I had a bit of a confidence boost. Like I had editors kind of asking my agent if I had a book, which motivated me. I, I, I think I wrote Blue Ticket quite fast as well because I think I just felt really excited to do another book and I kind of went freelance so I had a bit more time for writing and then Curse Bread I wrote in lockdown which was a really quick experience because I didn't have anything else to do <laughs> so it was kind of a really intense year of just writing a novel. <laughs> you were the person who actually did write a novel in lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> I think it doesn't get talked about enough when authors write a novel that um, goes out on submission to editors and then doesn't sell it. No publisher wants it. And, and I, that happened to me as well. So I wrote a novel that no one wanted to publish. And it is this very strange experience, isn't it? How did it feel for you, Sophie? I mean, it felt really heartbreaking. I think I've forgotten a little bit about how heartbreaking it felt because it was quite a long time ago now. But, you know, I'd given five years to this book I'd spent like all my spare time writing it I really believed in it and I got pretty close there was a couple of editors who I had meetings with I think it's just the problem in, edit in publishing people have to love your book they have to really love it and now I know more about the publishing industry I totally I totally get it and just no one really like liked it enough everyone was a bit like oh it's it's good it's competent I like it but it's just like doesn't have that special something and it, it definitely made the, the process of going out on submission with the water cure 
a bit scarier because <laughs> I kind of knew that it wasn't like a guaranteed thing. But I think it did sort of help make me a bit more resilient. And I guess it showed for me as well that I really, really love writing. I want to write because to sort of start again was quite daunting. But I, I didn't I didn't think about not writing another book, if that makes sense. I was a bit like, okay, so that one did work, but I guess I'll just write another novel. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned there, you know, in all of your spare time, because you did have a job at this time, right? You were writing all of these novels while you had a job. Like, tell us how that worked. The Water Cure I wrote when I was working full time. I wrote in the mornings and I wrote in the evenings and I wrote on weekends. And looking back at it now, I'm just, I'm not really sure how I did it. I remember being a bit exhausted sometimes, but then I'm like, I'm 35 now and I was like 20 six twenty seven writing it so it's like I probably had youthful energy <laughs> on my side but yeah it was kind of that excitement of getting home on a Friday and being like oh yes tomorrow I'm gonna go to a coffee shop and like write for three hours and that's like my special time. The Water Cure despite the struggles of getting it out into the world was then long listed for the Booker Prize what was that like what happened when you got the call? Yeah, it remains one of the most surreal experiences I think I'll ever have. <laughs> I was like, I, I think I actually was hungover. I think I was watching, I, I seem to remember like watching Project Runway and getting a call from my agent, uh, not my agent, my editor. Then she said that I had been longlisted for the Booker Prize and I was like, what? And then I just screamed, <laughs> just actually like screamed and then started crying. <laughs> <laughs> Did you manage to like, hang up before you started screaming or were you just on the phone to your editor when this happened I think like I think a bit of both probably and you're not supposed to tell anyone like you have to like it's like a really heavy NDA but I just immediately sort of like screamed and then my boyfriend was like are you okay um what happened and I was like I can't tell you that I was like okay maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll tell you but like don't tell anyone (laughs) that's so exciting like did you then immediately go out for like if you're hungover were you able to have a celebratory hair of the dog or anything I think it just totally cured me of my hangover (laughs) yeah the rest of the day I was kind of in disbelief I love that that's the world's best hangover cure getting long listed for the booker (laughs) highly highly recommend (laughs) all your novels feel very pared back and distilled and they have this extraordinarily sharp almost jewel-like quality to the prose where it feels as though like really every word has had to earn its place in your writing process is there a lot that gets left on the cutting room floor yeah I'm thinking about it specifically today because I'm I'm working on a novel at the moment and I've literally got like 10 tabs open and they're things like version two to like version eight and I'm like moving between like about four different versions and sort of mixing things around and as I'm going between the versions I'm looking at how much they've changed and I'm just like I've got to find a more efficient system (laughs) and with Cursed Bread I think I read in your excellent newsletter that you'd written it from an entirely different point of view at what point did you sort of realize hang on no I've got to kill this particular darling and start completely again yeah I got like halfway through and I just wasn't finding myself excited to go to it. And like when I was reading through it, I was sort of skimming. It felt like if you're dating someone and you're just not really engaged or something. And you're, it's like, this should be the honeymoon phase of my novel. I should be like really feeling it right now. And instead I was just like, ugh, it's like dragging myself through it. I was like, I can't drag myself another 25,000 words because if I'm like dragging myself, the reader would be, must be so bored in the end or like a thing to do or the, the all the signs pointed at changing the voice itself. So I did rewrite it from a different character's perspective it, it was even kind of useful it was really useful because the character I 
was writing that draft through was I was writing it through the voice of Violet and who's like a secondary character in the book but well not secondary character but she she is one of the main characters but we don't really get her perspective but I felt I had a bigger understanding of her and it's just like she was just the kind of her motivations and her dynamics were just a bit less interesting than Elodie the character I ended up writing writing the novel through in, in her voice um, so it was kind of really useful, but it was also annoying. Like, why couldn't I have just figured out that I should have written it through Elodie's voice the first time around? The thing I always find interesting about your novels, and I, I actually mention them quite often when I'm teaching people, especially if they're working with historical fiction, because you manage to convey a sense of place and time while doing what seems to be very little heavy lifting. You know, it's not one of those historical novels where they're like, Jessamy picked up the crinoline and emptied it into the chamber pot. You know, like you managed to... <laughs> I'm clearly going to be really good at historical what fiction. What a scene. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I watched a lot of RuPaul recently and they and there was that... Um, they recreated a very camp version of Poldark and I think that's what I was picturing. But anyway, I'm, I'm curious. Do you have, like, when you were writing that, did you do lots of research into rural 1950s France or do you just not care, like... How does that work? <laughs> well, I don't know. I was just curious. <laughs> Do you just not care? Well, no, because, you Sorry. know, some people get so into the detail and be like, oh, no, we must have the kind of bread they were making in 1953. Like, and, true. you know, that kind of process of research. I don't know. What What is it for you, Sophie? I did do a bit of research, but it was more important for me to just kind of get um, the textures a bit more. I think I'm, I kind of, with all that sort of getting things absolutely accurate, not saying about, obviously it needs to be a degree of accuracy, but I mean in terms of hunting down the exact like fabric in the lining of a quilt that would have been made in 1752 or something, like getting that granular, for me that would take, uh, it, it wouldn't kind of be that relevant to the story. And I kind of, I love books that do do that and that get super granular and, su- and they're super kind of in the details. Uh, but for me, it's like more textural. And I think the story was exploring more like the relationships. It wasn't so much about um, creating an exact time and place. And also because the more I wrote the book, the more I was like, well, it's kind of not even a real place, if that makes sense. Like, obviously, it is a real place and a real event, but it almost became a jumping off point for this, you know, a city, a, a town of like memory and a town of fantasy, a town that's like remembered. And we don't remember all the details completely correctly. And it does have a sort of dreamlike atmosphere. So, maybe that's my way of sort of excusing myself from not getting all the details completely true but yeah just trying to get those key textures right I guess those key things that kind of put you in the place but without getting too bogged down because I think again like I kind of get a bit bored if there's too much going from A to B from here to there like they walk down the stairs they're brushing the teeth or whatever I, I think it's essentially just figuring out like what as a writer you are good at doing and if I am kind of spending too much time on those little bits then I kind of like lose a bit of the energy I think and it's more from going from one thing to the other. I mean one of the things that I feel links all of your novels is female desire what keeps you writing about it? It's just it kind of encompasses so much the idea of like wanting like there's so many things to want and I think it's really easy to feel like it's somehow unimportant or a bit hysterical or needy or you know to kind of be a person who has a lot of feeling and a lot of passion sounds really cheesy (laughs) not just the idea I think of just wanting something so much that would drive you to do so many things and like yeah in blue tickets it's 
the desiring to have a baby and in Kiss Bread, it's just sort of desiring sex, but also wanting to be seen and to be loved. Um, I just think it's such a kind of powerful impulse and a powerful driver. So I just keep going back to it again and again. <laughs> as well as desire, though, there's also a really vivid thread of sexual violence that runs through the novels, often when in connection with a version of desire that's kind of consciously disturbing. And sometimes it starts off alluring and then it becomes unsettling. Is that something that's hard to write about? Um, yeah, I think at, at times, for sure, in The Water Cure, you know, it's really important for me that I didn't kind of tip over into gratuitousness. And I sort of want to approach these things from a place of sensitivity as well and to like not kind of, I don't know, not, not get too, I, I guess, like not try and make things too glamorous and stuff like in Coast Bread, there's a lot of kind of fairly violent sex, but it is all consensual between everyone I think what we kind of desire can be also a thing like used against us or a thing used to hurt us and to kind of explore that interplay has always been interesting for me. I think you've mentioned before as well that you take inspiration from Welsh folk tales especially the Mabinogion and you're originally from Wales could you tell us a bit about your relationship with Welsh literature and folklore in your writing? Yeah so when I was growing up I went to Welsh, I went to lang- Welsh language school until I was 18. Mythology and folklore, you know, was always something I learned about school. My parents had a big book of Welsh fairy stories that I was obsessed with when I was a kid. You know, we had a copy of the Mabinogion always knocking around. And these fairy stories in particular, the, the ones that I was kind of obsessed with, there was so much in there. Even when I was really little, I remember kind of rewriting them or retelling them the kind of stories of cities that have been drowned and changelings and people going to like a party in a like a rabbit hole and they come out and like 50 years have passed and they were just so interesting to me and I think this kind of folkloric element has just always been something that has a grip on me and you know when writing Curse Bread I was thinking of maybe more like French fairy tales like Bluebeard and I guess like yeah just like the kind of mythologies that are fairy tale-ish and are, are dreamy but they are also kind of revealing like human truths and kind of I guess allowing a space of magic because my stuff is kind of speculative I kind of say Kiss Bread as being speculative and I do think of like fairy tales and stuff as being in a speculative tradition as well you know the idea of like well anything could happen like maybe it's magic rather than like the future or just taking a few liberties with the past but the idea that you're kind of not necessarily hitched to reality so much. I mean, speaking of places that are not London, Charlotte and I both follow you on Instagram and it seems like you're always on these chic little holidays. And I was wondering, like, do you write away? Um, I definitely I definitely do right away it kind of depends yeah it depends on the holiday like I, I find a very perverse pleasure in like not taking my laptop on holiday like it feels like I can't believe I'm going over five days and I'm not going to be available <laughs> at all and I'm like that's actually like a normal a normal thing <laughs> um, I guess it's like the thing about being able to sort of work from anywhere now especially post-covid is just having that freedom as long as you have google docs and a phone is like you can kind of do anything I remember editing the water cure on my ipad on my commute to work and just em- embracing cloud life <laughs> I, I worry that alice has made us has made us sound like kind of um instagram stalkers 
<laughs> just like, oh, where's Sophie gone next? She's gone to some new exciting place. I just always think it's like there's, an, there's a Campari there, there's a nice lake. I'm like, Sophie's on another chic little holiday. Like, it just <laughs> it's always looks so nice. Oh, I think Instagram does a lot of legwork in making life look more glamorous than it is. <laughs> <laughs> as how being a novelist should look I think it's the it's the very much the archetype of cool novelist I think it's very good to be traveling around working wherever whenever but not working but having ideas speaking of having ideas and working what have you been writing this week have there been any specific moments where you've been writing and something has interrupted you got in the way ruined your flow anything like that my birthday and <laughs> my birthday has ruined it now I'm, I'm trying to finish a draft of my uh, novel this week and I feel like I'm kind of in the phase of like waking up at like five and just wanting to like get to it and stuff but yeah the only things that has interrupted my flow are like nice nice things really like you know like my my partner coming over and and have, having a birthday and I've been trying to like get my house ready for my parents to come and stay this weekend and stuff and like st- stuff like that, which is like, you know, it's just, it's life and it's, it's lovely. Has there been anything this week that has inspired your writing in spite of the celebrations? I think birthdays are always a quite a reflective time, aren't they? Like having a little bit of a think about as a day my my life and because I think this week's been particularly chaotic, kind of like the house has been full and busy and it's kind of been one of those things where I'm like, oh, I, I still feel a bit like in some in some ways like I don't feel like a 35 year old <laughs> you know it's like I'm like I'm sort of knocking around in this house with my friends and loved ones um having like a nice time like we were sat on the sofa like watching Kath and Kim and eating Toblerone and I found that weirdly inspiring so I was like oh actually like you know I my life hasn't really turned out how I thought it would like I you know I, I was when I was 30 I was engaged and I was just like buying a house with my former fiance and stuff and now it's like oh I'm 35 and I'm like not married and I'm watching Kath and Kim on the sofa eating Toblerone but I also have like my books and I've got my lovely friends and stuff and a lot of love in my life but it was just like ah, oh. I found that sort of yeah I ended up sort of writing about it tangentially but just yeah <laughs> I don't know letting go of letting go of what your life should be like <laughs> that sounds like quite a significant turning point in your life though did it how did that affect your writing because that's a really huge set of things to happen yeah I, I mean my life has like totally changed in the last five years I've been mean, starting with the water cure publishing as well because that did really change my life with the book stuff and then my former fiance also he was really ill he had cancer and it was just it just feels like I was kind of like did a little list of like all the things that could have happened in the last five years and I was like oh that is so, that's a lot <laughs> so I think it's like that sense of when all when so many massive things happen in your life maybe that's kind of why in the end I was kind of I've been fairly prolific with books because I think writing's always just been like okay I could like process this or it's something to like really focus on and writing just makes me really happy like my boyfriend today was like you've been in a really good mood this week and I think it's because you have been working on your book loads and you can kind of see in some ways like the finish line of this draft and he was like you were like you're a delight to be around even though like you're kind of stressed <laughs> <laughs> I was like yeah yeah maybe well I'm just really glad that it's helped you in what sounds like quite a roller coaster of a time really yeah I'm hoping like 35 to 40 is a bit more boring <laughs> <laughs> or another three novels could be just on their way <laughs> is that what keeps you going with writing then Sophie is it how it makes you feel yeah I think I I'm not really a person who finishes things like historically like in 
I, I was always that child who would kind of try things or like go to karate once or something and then not want to do it again. I was kind of a procrastinator. So the fact that I have written several books is kind of amazing to me. And I think it's just like, it's just my favorite thing. And that sounds really earnest and really like, silly maybe but it's just like I just lo- I do like love it I just get such a lot of joy out of it to have like have that thing that really feels at the center of your life I think Sheila Hetty said something along those lines where she was talking about like feeling really lucky to have found writing and to have it like in her life and that really resonated with me a lot Something I loved about that conversation was the sense I got from Sophie that despite some darkness and the ups and downs of the process and of publishing, writing books is essentially a joyful thing. Yeah, it was just such a gorgeous reminder. And we are so grateful to Sophie McIntosh for speaking to us. Cursed Bread is published by Hamish Hamilton and Sophie has a beautiful newsletter called Little Intimacies. There's also loads happening on the In Haste Substack where you can get exclusive extras, new writing and bonus podcast content head to inhaste.substack.com or check the show notes for more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you can. It really helps other people find us. Join us next time when our guest is the much-anticipated debut novelist Jenny Godfrey. I can still remember this doctor's appointment where the doctor said, this is the first time I've ever had anyone brought to me with the issue of them reading too much. Go away. <laughs> Let her read. In Haste is produced by Holly Fisher for Hasty Productions. Our music is by Maria Chiaro Ochiro with graphic design by Alicia Fernandez. Mm-hmm.